Now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Elizabeth Aguilera. Elizabeth Aguilera is an award-winning health and welfare reporter for Cal Matters. She previously covered community health for Southern California Public Radio and immigration for the San Diego Union Tribune. While in San Diego, she won a Best of the West Award for her coverage of sex trafficking between Mexico and the United States. Please give a very warm welcome to Ms. Elizabeth Aguilera. Good evening. So it's so wonderful to see all your happy faces. Um, I want to introduce the panel. Have a seat, everyone. Um, I'm just going to introduce everyone, and then we're going to jump right in. We, you know, there's so much to talk about on this topic. So uh, this is Margie Kagawa Singer to my left. She is a medical anthropologist at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Policy, and her research focuses on how healthcare systems interact with immigrant cultures. Next to her is Claudia Kolker, who is an award-winning journalist and author of The Immigrant Advantage, What We Can Learn from Newcomers to America About Health, Happiness, and Hope. She's now at Rice University uh, working in the Tell me. Um, I work at Rice Business School <laughs> and I run Rice Business Wisdom, The Ideas. The Ideas, magazine. yes, I was going to say The Ideas uh, magazine. And she was previously on the editorial board at the Houston Chronicle. And then down at the end is Dr. David Hayes Bautista. And uh, he's a medical sociologist and director of the Center for the Study of Latino Health and Culture at the UCLA School of Medicine. Uh, his latest book is titled La Nueva California, Latinos from Pioneers to Post-Millennials. And also just someone I think that as a journalist, I have called on frequently for insight and perspective. And I know Claudia also um, was, was really thrilled to be uh, meeting Dr. David here today. So we're just going to jump right in on the topic of how immigrants are influencing health here in the United States, but mostly in California, I think is what we're talking about. And so I just, you know, I thought we would start with what is being recognized and accepted from immigrant cultures, and then we'll get to what we can learn, and then maybe what, what is lacking right now in terms of services. So let's just jump in in terms of what has been learned or adopted from immigrant cultures. You want to start, Margie? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just thinking, um, what is the number one condiment in the United States now? It was. It was. Yes. <laughs> Sriracha. Sriracha. Right. Okay. So how have immigrants changed? You know, our diet. It's, and it's sort of insidious. It just sort of happens. You don't realize it until it's done. And for every group except Native Americans, everyone else here has been an immigrant. It has transformed this country. It continues to do so. The pace is just much faster now and much more visible. We were able to be in our separate little, I don't know if it was by choice, it was usually by designation where we could or couldn't live. Um, I grew up in Berkeley, California, and I was at a couple of conferences and these two, at two very, two separate conferences, and a non-Hispanic white woman, woman came up to me at each one afterwards and said, oh, I enjoyed your talk so much. Um, it must be so great to have a culture. I don't. <laughs> it, you know, yes, I had the same reaction. But that's also how our science is done, how our institutions are built, that that's invisible, that the United States white culture is not anything people think about, it, that's what it is. And that the rest of us are interlopers. 
and what we bring is strange. But I think the demographics are that we will be the majority, and we already are in California, and that will be the entire country by 2042. Uh, I think Latinos are over 50% of mm -hmm. children in California, and it's going to change the entire face of this country. How do we um, capitalize on the differences? Because there's lots of right ways to do things, and we were just talking about research being done with one model. Right. And it doesn't include everyone else and other ways of being. And that's what my um, work is in. So if we've got multiple right ways, why aren't we integrating them? We're going to get to that question. Okay. But we're going so to continue with the, what, what, what has been adopted or influenced. And I know, Claudia, you were talking about some things uh, earlier that you feel like have been sort of recognized as health contributors that have come from immigrant cultures. Yes, and, and I just want to follow up on one point you made, which was great, which is we're talking about the most recent wave of immigrants because every wave of immigrants who came here, whether they wanted to be here or not, did something to change, um, often for the better our health. And so two, I'm going to go to two, two old groups. Um, one of them, which is the Germans who came to the United States, uh, created preschool, and in, they would come to um, forest new communities, and the first thing they would build would be a school and a preschool for their kids. And as we know, pre-K has incredible health implications. Mm -hmm. um, another, I'm, I'm from Houston, Texas, and the African-Americans who came, the Africans who came here many, many years ago, they brought um, a kind of architecture that we call in Houston, and um, it's called shotgun house. And there are a lot of theories about w where this word comes from, but these houses are beautifully ventilated and they have front porches. And again, we know now front porches, they're not just aesthetic, they contribute to the health of a community. Mm -hmm. So, so we immigrants have been changing our health and improving our health for many years, but there are several big ideas that are now um, becoming mainstream that used to be just basic um, principles and values among immigrant groups. One of them is the importance of postpartum care. In the United States, we, you know, we have baby showers and little mini clothes and games, and then the mom is completely abandoned. And I remember <laughs> telling myself, I think, I think I'm not supposed to call because she's bonding. That's a thing. And <laughs> so, which means that mothers are, are terribly, terribly isolated, and this has so many um, implications uh, for depression and illness. But in most cultures in the world, that come here, specifically Latinos, that's the one I really wrote about. Um, postpartum care, that's when the hardcore healthcare comes, comes in. So that's one of them. The other is the idea of, um, of ways of eating and how um, meat should be a condiment, it shouldn't be a main course, and how there should be a balance between the things you eat. Uh, Vietnamese in my hometown are experts at that. And the last one is loneliness, which is now considered an epidemic in the United States. But you, you ask most people from um, less industrialized countries when they come, come here, what, what's the hardest part? This is a lonely, lonely culture, they've been saying for years. So these are now medical ideas. Well, you know, I was born here in California. I went to fourth grade and I learned all about the Spanish. <laughs> and the Spanish came, they built the missions. 
And about 15 years ago, and I'm a researcher at School of Medicine, and I researched Latino health, and I thought, okay, I know when the Spanish got here. When did the Mexicans get here? <laughs> and nobody knew. So I've done the research, and now I know. So, and we say Mexicans, they were actually what I would call racially, they were Indo, Afro, Oriental, Ibero-Americanos <laughs> who brought their experience with Western society here 250 years ago, this April 11th. 250 years being here in California. They didn't look like the Puritans in Boston, okay? They didn't behave like it. They brought with them, by the way, the first university-trained, professionally licensed medical provider, the naval surgeon Pedro Prat. The very first one, 250 years ago. They brought the first Western-based urban public health infrastructure, which Pedro Prat had to develop. Just think of the water, go to the missions, look at the water supply, look at sewage, the infirmaries. There was a whole infrastructure. That was all brought by Mexicanos, by Indo, Afro, Oriento, Ibero, Americano. That's my term for it, and I'm trying to get some <laughs> Are you trying to get picked okay. up on that? Yeah. <laughs> 250 years later, they also brought things that we call culture that today yields really surprising outcomes. Here in California and in the, across the country, even though Latinos, yes, have less income, less education, less access to care, nonetheless, compared to non-Hispanic whites, have 30% fewer heart attacks, 35% fewer cancers, 60% less chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, all causes of death, 30% less, drink less, smoke less, do drugs less, live three and a half years longer nationally and here in California. How do they do it? And that's why I developed my center at the School of Medicine, the Center for the Study of Latino Health and Culture. How do they do that? That's our research question. Well, that, that is the Latino health paradox, correct? Yes, that's what it's called. That's, what it's that's called. the Latino epidemiological paradox. Yes. <laughs> and so how, how is that happening? Do we know why that is? And what can how can that contribute to even a better understanding of our health? Let me put it like this. If everybody in the United States had the same epidemiological profile as Latinos for heart attacks, cancers, and strokes, we would save 250,000 lives every year. That's a lot of lives. We, and you wouldn't need a new health care coverage. You wouldn't need a new system of hospitals. All you need to do is figure out, how do Latinos do it? And can they share it with their back door, over the back fence with their neighbors? That is for me, the keys to the kingdom. And I'm thinking that should be the number one item on every medical school dean's list of things we got to do today, discover the mechanism that produced the Latino epidemiological paradox. But I have to tell you, it is not. It is not on their list, mm -hmm. it's not even the top 100. Right. And in fact, at UCLA, we want to increase the scores we require for admissions, MCAT and the GPA. We want to now go to the 85th percentile to get into UCLA School of Medicine. It's going to wipe out all the diversity and we'll never find out. <laughs> Well, what are some of the factors? Well, I'm a researcher, and I'm a, okay, I'm a numbers guy, I'm a nerd. I like to put numbers to things. Nonetheless, I like to put numbers to exciting things. I can't put a number to it yet, but here's what we're looking at. You, you, classically, you look at income, education, access to care, and race as risk factors. Well, they don't work with Latinos. They don't have any predictive power. So what we're looking at, but this is, I'm not gonna say I have the answer, but social networks, social support, family, in other words. We're looking, and not just in the family, we're looking at community. In fact, there is something that my colleagues in the East Coast are researching, they call it the barrio effect. 
when we look at birth outcomes, either low birth weight or infant mortality. It doesn't matter the mom's individual level of income, education, or access to care. What's really as important is if the mom lives in a densely populated Latino barrio, the outcomes are going to be good. The further away from a densely populated barrio, the worse the outcomes, irrespective of individual levels of income, education, access to care. So what it is about neighborhoods. And not because, oh, Boyle Heights, it's poor, poverty, blah, blah, it can't be very good. Oh, but it's going to add three and a half years to your life if we can figure this out. So clearly, social networks, we're looking at diet, particularly looking at the classic Mesoamerican diet, very, very low in animal protein, like two or three times a year. Very plant-based, but very good. We're looking at um, issues of the racial narratives that we have had to deal with, because 100 and, mm -hmm. remember 160 years ago, this was part of Mexico, so it's not like you know suddenly new things were brought in. And right here in San Francisco, three blocks from here, they were selling during the gold rush tamales, enchiladas, mezcal, chiles. <laughs> By the way, sveiracha comes from chiles that were from Mesoamerica, Marjorie, remember? They were discovered here, taken across <laughs> taken to Asia, across. made into sveiracha, and then brought back. So we've been doing this for a long time. That's Indo-Afro-Oriento-Ibero-Americanos, okay? We've been global for a long time. So we're looking at these things. We're looking at dance, music, spirituality, uh, the mind-body balance, but I can't put numbers to them yet, but clearly the standard determinants have absolutely no predictive power, then why do we use them? Right. So you told me, David, that the, the healthcare system has had to adapt to some of these things, right? Like you gave me an example of when a Latina woman is going to give birth, right? She doesn't show up at the hospital alone. It's sort of a community comes with her there and leaves with her with her baby. What are some other things like that that you've seen that the system has responded to, right? Allowing families. Well, let me put it like this. Any HMO in California, and we have a very high HMO penetration, or about 40% health maintenance, very quickly discovers if they enroll Latinos, Latinos are young compared to other populations, they're employed compared to other populations, they're healthy as horses, but that is not the perception. Guess what? You have a young, healthy population paying in then to support the care for the older population that generally tend to be baby boomers. So HMOs have discovered Latinos are good for their bottom line. And some HMOs have actually had to alter, for example, the design of their hospitals. In West LA, where I live, you have a little itty-bitty delivery room because a woman comes, she gives birth, she goes home. But hospitals in East LA have discovered, no, you have to make the room bigger, you have to have chairs and sofas because a whole gaggle of people come in, they're there 24-7, someone drops a baby, and then later on they go home. And they're not going to leave because visiting hours are. So they've accommodated because they want to keep the clients happy and enrolled. That's what you got to do. Marjorie, do you have some examples along that line in terms of responding to Asian cultures or, or the uh, Pacific Islander population in terms of the, the belief system and how they may approach healthcare? I think it's the non-Hispanic white population and then everybody else who tend to have a more familial approach to well-being. And I had a student from Armenia. He was a physician there, came for his uh, master's degree in, in uh, public health. And he called his father every day. At home, he lived next door to his father. He said, how could I not talk to him every day? I don't understand the people here who never talk to their family. You know, and it's that interconnectedness that we're losing in this culture as we modernize 
And it's that fundamental social need of family. But how that's interpreted is very different. I was reading an article when I was studying anthropology by this Japanese um, anthropologist, and he said, Americans, um, white Americans, socialize their kids to fly the coop when they're 18, be independent. Right? He said, but the Japanese way is to keep you part, an integral member of the family. And what struck me was I had just gone through two instances with each of my kids in which I had lost it with them. If you're a parent, you know when those <laughs> moments happen. And I literally, with my son, put him outside the front door and said, you cannot come in until you can follow the rules of this house. My husband, who's German-Jewish, would send the kids to their bedroom, the inner sanctum, and not let them out. Mine were out, they couldn't come in. And I said, I'll let them handle it when they're adults. But, you know, just that those innate responses, those automatic responses that are your cultural upbringing, but also talk about what family means and how the interconnectedness that we've always had in every culture, but we're more autonomous. Our whole healthcare system, as a colleague of mine says, is contractual with the mm -hmm. clinician and the hospital. He said, in the African-American community where he does his work, he said, it's a covenant. But we don't have the time for clinicians to build that covenant mm -hmm. with their patients. And that's one of the reasons why sometimes adherence is low, because people don't trust the clinician they're talking with. They haven't built up that relationship. So I think you know, it, it's everything that's happening in our world, both the dynamics of the modernization mm -hmm. and the technology, but also forgetting you know, the humanness within all of us. So I think that's a commonality. But we can learn different um, skills, be it in diet, be it mm -hmm. in, in behavior. A friend of mine, um, Tony Yancey, was the instant recess and the 10-minute exercises. And she was an athlete. You know, so she was into exercise. And, and I said, no, in the, all the Asian cultures in the native Hawaiian, thank you for mentioning Pacific Islanders, is dance. And I said, you put on the music and they're, they're up, everybody's up, <laughs> right? But exercise, that's just not a concept that translates easily. And dancing is communal. So it's those kinds of differences that if we listen for them, perhaps we can do better in improving the health of everyone. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Claudia, you mentioned something that I thought was interesting in terms of touch, that social family relationship, but also using touch. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, and, and touch right now more and more in, in the media is, is something that seems terrifying and toxic and invasive. So we rightly have a lot of concerns about unauthorized touch, but at the same time, we are as a society are touching each other less and less. And it's not just, we're not um, simply touching each other's arms less and less. We are smelling each other less. Um, we are feeling um, body heat less. There's, there's so much less information, um, so, many, um, so many microbes, good and bad, that we are not absorbing because we're separated from each other, each other more. So there's some real consequences to that and, and touch has, as we know with, with babies, it's essential, right? It's a matter of life and death, but also 
It, the need for touch never goes away, including in old age. And old and elderly people are often not touched at all. And I have a, a friend who's a chiropractor, and he said, we were taught you may be the only person to touch this patient in their lives. Wow. This, is, this is a covenant. So this is something, um, in, in Spanish, it's called calor humano. It's just human warmth. And it's another one of those things, it's just one of the values of life, but we are finding out more and more, no, this is a medical need, too. Mm -hmm. And that reminds me of the idea that many cultures are very used to having multi-generational households. Right, and so this is something that lots of you know Asian groups, Latino groups are very familiar with. And having, when we do stories now, there's a lot of stories that you've probably seen lately. Millennials are back home. There's more multi-generational going on. You know, it's sort of sometimes the headlines are like, oh my gosh, this is happening. This shouldn't be happening. And having, I, I find myself having to remind my colleagues often, like. How does that break down demographically? Because a lot of those people were already doing that and have been doing that. Um, and that may contribute to what you're talking about in terms of loneliness or touch because there is already sort of that family structure set in place. Absolutely. So. And, and actually, you've hit on something else that is underappreciated as, um, as a medical benefit, which is the presence of grandparents. Not just any old family members, but grandparents. And I think there's research that shows that, that kids who grow up in the presence of grandparents, it actually has cognitive benefits, as well as gives, solidifies your idea of um, your identity, where you're from. There, there are all kinds of subtle uh, benefits to these things. And yeah, I'm, you know, I'm just, just shy of the 60 generation where if you lived with family members, there was something pathological about it, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> I live down the street from my mom and my daughters love it. So what are, those are some of the things that, that we've accepted, right, in our culture in terms of that have been, um, come from immigrant cultures, right? Like even just the acceptance of yoga or acupuncture or like you mentioned, sriracha, hot foods <laughs> used to be bad for you, now it's accepted or a wine, you know, drinking wine once a day. Um, what are some of the things that, that our health sort of environment can still learn from immigrants? Some of the things you've already mentioned, but what are, what are some other things that we can still learn from immigrants that haven't been recognized or absorbed? Well, let me just throw in a little bit of, even a lot of non-Hispanic whites share these things. Uh, I did a book about 15 years on looking at patterns of behavior. I noticed we have three major patterns, particularly here in California. You have the Calvinist Puritans who seek purity. And how do you find salvation? It's you between you and God. Then you have Quakers, who, by the way, were a generational reaction to the Puritans, because so, the Puritans are very near, straight and narrow. And Quakers, you know, you're not going to tell me, your inner voice will tell you. Everybody can find salvation. And then you have, particularly in the West, Latino Catholicism, which is kind of different from what the Pope knows. I guess the current one might, because he's from Argentina, but previous, you know, it's a little bit different, okay. Where you find salvation in community, not as an individual. So actually, Quakers have never had a problem, or not, rarely have had a problem with Latinos because they, they kind of resonate with one another. And a lot of, and as religious bodies, these are really not, their uh, tendency, social tendencies, they have the roots in Calvinism, Quakerism, and Latino Catholicism. So actually, as you look at, there are a lot of non-Hispanic white Catholics, and they tend to behave a lot like Latinos. Uh, you go to Louisiana, you have large African origin populations that were Catholic. And they, they all tend to be, so it's not just Latino things. So actually, we, 
It's not like everybody's going to have bad health. We just need to learn a little bit better our own roots and how do we use them all together. We're stronger together than we are individually. But that individualness has seeped into medicine so that physicians are trained to treat the individual autonomous isolated patient. Mm -hmm. There is no family. And in medicine, when they bring their family, that's wrong, that's non-compliant, that's familism. Throw the family out. But because that's the way medicine, guess where it came from, you know, Harvard and all of that. Um, but we need to get back to more, you know, University of Pennsylvania, Quakerism, Latino Catholicism. It's okay to have family. It's kind of natural. <laughs> Maybe we're better off in family. At least we, those areas think we find salvation as members of a group, not individually. So these are deep-seated tendencies, but we have a lot of mm -hmm. diversity, even amongst non-Hispanic whites. You mentioned something, Marjorie, that I thought was interesting in terms of diagnosis, along the line of what David is talking about, sort of the fat, where the family fits into that. Or doesn't. Or doesn't, yes. <laughs> Which is, I think, where the schism happened in, in modern medicine is a very mechanistic view of the body, isolated from the spirit, the family, the community. And I mean, our healthcare system is a mental health system and a physical health system, as though the two can be treated separately. But with more cultures coming into contact with our healthcare system, the realization that it's actually one and that they inform each other and that you can't treat one without the other and that body, mind, and spirit really should be addressed. And that's fundamental, I think, to every culture. It's just the way we structure our healthcare system to negate that, which is why I think it fares mm -hmm. so poorly mm -hmm. for most people. If you're talking about lifestyle changes, if there's an immediate infection, yeah, biomedicine is great. But if you're talking about more chronic illnesses or you know, just lifestyle issues and emotional strain, then you've got to put the person back together again. And our healthcare training doesn't do very well at that. Mm -hmm. David, you talked about the paradox. Mm -hmm. So, is, and you mentioned that there isn't sort of medical school deans, right? They're not trying to figure this out. No, they, um. they, they think Latinos are a problem. Bring their families, oh my God. Bring food into the hospital for Pete's sake. Tamales. There, there was a, um, a Grey's Anatomy episode where someone set up a Dia de los Muertos altar in the, <laughs> in the patient room. I don't know if anyone saw that episode, but it was you know this moment where they explained what that was and right there was this whole like, why are they here? What are they doing? They celebrate death, you know? And, and the character, one of the characters explained that it was this beautiful ritual of honoring the dead. But th these are the things, when you say they're not recognizing, how, why would that be an important thing? And how could that be changed? How, how do you get that right? Well, well, it's interesting. Let's compare Halloween, which is October 31st to Day of the Dead, which is November 2nd. Halloween, it's kind of Celtic in its origin. Evil spirits are out there. They're going to get you. They're knocking on your door. Bribe them, trick or treat, give them something that will go away. They won't harm you. Day of the Dead, 48 hours later, is not that. In fact, you're going to remember your ancestors, your family, the ones who have departed. You're going to spend some time with them. You're going to talk with them, remember them. You're not trying to drive them away. So even though on the surface, Day of the Dead looks so morbid, but actually it's not. And certainly we're not sending our ancestors away. We're there, we're going to remember them. And just 
If you haven't seen it, you got to see Coco. I think they do a very good job <laughs> of explaining it. Could I add something to yeah. that too? Yeah, I, I think you were absolutely right about that. And this year, um, because the internet spies on me and knows my interests, I found a super cheap <laughs> ticket to Oaxaca for the Day of the Dead. And it was extraordinary because in, in Houston, it's very, it's very common to have these altars. But the way it is in, in Oaxaca, it's not even just a visit. It's living alongside. It is, a, it is like Mardi Gras in New Orleans. And so you don't visit or tidy up the graveyard. You spend 12 hours there, and you've got a huge picnic, and you're hanging out, and you are drinking to the end of that bottle, which is, it, you know, it's a time-consuming process. And for me, it was a revelation. It was actually different from what I'd seen and loved in the United States about Day of the Dead. It was, um, it was sharing life. It was spending quality time with your dead. And they were still part of the family. So it wasn't, the, you know, you, it wasn't like visiting somebody in prison. It was, um, there's, a, there's a book about Jewish um, shtetls, Jewish little um, villages, and it's called Life is with People. And I think that's the idea of Day of the Dead. You, you, don't, um, you don't lose your membership in the family um, once you go beyond the veil. Well, and, and, go ahead, Mark. That also is in uh, the Asian cultures. I grew up Buddhist. Uh, and in the home, there's a little altar. Well, depends on your money. Ours was very little. And <clears throat> every morning and every meal, you give the first scoop of rice and you put it on the altar and you say hello and explain. And at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, you do the same thing at dinner and then tell your ancestors what your day was like. And so it's a daily communion. Do you actually with, talk? Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. And then at the, then the, where the, in the cemetery, there's always at least two, three times a year, the entire family will gather and just talk with each other, you know, in the presence of, so that you never lose that person. And in the Buddhist faith, there's a, a funeral service on the first day, the third day, the fifth day, the seventh day, the 28th, and then it goes for 50 years. And by that time, nobody's left that ever knew this person, you know, including you. So it, but there's this continuity and connectedness that is just fundamental to your being. So you're never mm -hmm. alone. And I think those, and it's probably present in most other cultures as well. So, but we've lost that here. When I've, I asked a, a priest at the hospital, I said, what are the ceremonies in the Christian faith after the funeral? And he said, there aren't any. And I thought, how weird, you know, that it's truncated. And there is another side, but you never connect with it anymore. And you've lost those individuals, whereas in most other cultures, mm -hmm. they're always with you. It's like they are literally exiled. Yeah, they're, they're out of the party. And how, yeah. how does that, how would you bring that back to influencing health, do you think, in terms of immigrant cultures and those traditions influencing health as we know it now? I have two thoughts. One of them is, um, I still, I think, I think it's extraordinary that this has not, this, this phenomenon about the immigrant epidemiological paradox has been known about for ages, and there, we're not that much farther in getting a hold of it. It's so important. But one of them is, that, that I, I think is discussed, is the idea of 
having, coming from something bigger and having a worldview that is bigger. And so many or most of the Latino immigrants in the United States, they are paying for someone back home that they may not see for years or decades, but they have that village, that kid, um, that wife in their minds, and they are connected to something way bigger. And um, I've, I've seen some writing that says that this, this may be uh, a reason why uh, most of the big immigrant groups in the United States have uh, measurably better mental health. And there's, again, we don't know why, but it may be related to this idea of having a, um, being part of something bigger, which is a good stress reducer. And then the other is the idea, the other idea I think we could benefit from that is, um, that it is, that has connections to health, is the idea of what's, what's the shape of life? Is it a highway that you're going down, you're gonna get over some bumps in the road, and then it's smooth sailing on an Autobahn? Or is it a circle where definitely something terrible's gonna happen? <laughs> and then it's gonna, then it's gonna look good and be smooth sailing, and then totally, definitely, you're gonna lose a wheel. And so there's, at the school that I work at, we have some, do I still have my yeah. <laughs> radio <laughs> contact? <okay. laughs> but there's, there's research uh, that has to do with um, Asians and, and saving. And they, uh, Asians save way, way more than Americans who save way less than 5%. And part of it, according to the study, is about how do you see the future ahead? And if you know that something definitely terrible is gonna happen, that's gonna change your saving habits. And so they actually try, they, they induced a sort of a mindset in uh, their subjects saying, okay, think, I don't know how you do this in a lab, but think, think of, the, of life and your finances as a circle mm -hmm. rather than a highway with some bumps in it. And it actually changed their behaviors. And I think you can argue that uh, what you've got in the bank is pretty closely connected to what kind of health care you're going to get. Right, right. Well, I want to touch on something you said, Claudia, and asked David about this. You mentioned this connection, this bigger connection to maybe back home, and that it may contribute to, you know, maybe keeping people going, hope, less mental health. Again, we're coming back to family connections, social network, right? Is that something, David, that you found in your research or talking to people that that is part of this discussion. Sure, but we need to, I, I need to clarify something. Now, I'm born here. I'm an eighth generation American of Mexican origin. This is my old country, right here, California. So this is home, mm -hmm. my home country, so to speak. But yes, as I, and I've done the historic demographics of Latinos ever since 1769 to last week. <laughs> and it's clear uh, that these issues of Community, salvation, idea of citizenship, responsibility, health, balance, I can trace back to about the 18th century. Not always as clearly explained as that, but when I know what I'm looking for, I can see them right there. So we have to remember, talk about Latinos, this is, because we are Native American as well, you know, this is home, like we didn't immigrate, the border crossed us. But we're still here, you know, <laughs> happy dancing and everything else. Uh, but if we can just figure out what is it that causes the Latino epidemiological paradox, so it could be shared, because it's something simple. A grandma, and, you know, right. at home, I don't know, rent a grandma, rente una abuela, I guess it's. That's but does it, does it change for the second and third generation? Well, a little bit, enough that it alarms me. Now, as I mentioned, Latinos have far lower rates of drinking, smoking, drug use than non-Hispanic whites. 
But if I had to triage out, say I had a thousand Latinos, which ones, there's going to be some at high risk, who would they be? I'd ask two questions to those thousand Latinos. First question I would ask, do you speak Spanish? And about 850 say, yes, right, you move over here, you're not going to be a problem. I'd have about 150 left that don't speak Spanish. I'd ask the second question, did you go to college at all? And about 100 of them would say, yes, well, you go over there. Even though you don't speak Spanish, you're going to be okay. There's going to be 50 left that didn't go to college, don't speak Spanish, and that will be the group that will have elevated three, four, five, six, seven times high rates of drinking, smoking, drug use, sexually transmitted disease, teen pregnancy, welfare utilization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I could take that group, I could teach them Spanish. Yo me llamo, right? <laughs> That's not going to change their behavior. So it's not the language, but clearly there's something associated. And I'm thinking is that if you don't speak Spanish, you don't hear grandma, and you know, grandmas are always harping away. I can't believe what she did. She was walking down the street smoking a cigarette. I mean, you hear that all the time. Uh, you get messages, I think, about family, health, and everything else. But if you don't speak Spanish, you don't hear it. That's what we're work right. looking at next is, what is it about not speaking Spanish that caused the problem? And it's not the fact that you could conjugate you know, the subjunctive. It's not that. It's, it's communication and connection in some fashion we're looking at. Right, because it changes, right? You mentioned, Claudia, that clearly everybody who is not native came from somewhere, right? There were various waves of immigrant groups who may have had and probably did have these same sorts of characteristics when they arrived, and then that has changed over time. So how do you capture that, right? How do you capture that and have it contribute toward lower number of heart attacks and cancers? And that's, that's why I set up my research center 24 <laughs> years ago. We're going to get there. We'll find out. I'll, I'll be able to give you guys numbers sometime. I'm a numbers guy. Sorry, I'm a, just a nerd. So we have a, a little bit of time left. I wanted to also talk about what is, we've talked about influencing health, but what are some of the things that you think are challenges for immigrants in terms of the health care system? Um, what are some things that could be done better for them in terms of We don't have time care. for that. <laughs> well, could I just pop in on that saying as we're, I just noticed today the news was released that the numbers of people that enrolled in covered California have fallen mm -hmm. sharply. And that was, that's the White House's idea. That's what they want to do. But I was not happy with Obamacare way back when, back in 2013, because, you know, in insurance, what you want for actuarial reasons, you want as many young, healthy, healthy. people paying in so that they can support the expense of the few, but, you know, people that are older are going to have expenses. So what did we do? They plan on right off the bat. First of all, we made it impossible. Undocumented cannot buy health insurance uh, covered California, even with their own money, even if they're willing to pay. And also recent immigrants up to five years could not participate. Mm -hmm. Well, who is your young, hardworking, I mean, look at any farm here in California who's doing the work, young, healthy, hardworking, are your undocumented recent immigrants? And we eliminated them and we just committed actuarial suicide. We shot ourselves in the foot because they could be footing the bill for the older baby boomers. But because of strange ideologies we have in this country, we'll eat the food that they grow, but we won't let them buy insurance with their own money. From an insurance standpoint, that is stupid. Talk to any actuary. So yeah, we, we, have, we not only didn't offer insurance to them, then we're not capturing their expenses because they are making expenses. Right. They're going to Tijuana for care. Right, and that, that's a really important point in terms of what the system can do yeah. um, to reach those communities and to 
address the bottom line, really, mm -hmm. in, really? in what mm -hmm. you're talking about, the business sense of that. What are some other ways that you think that the system is lacking this group or that could, they could learn from? One of the things is, is to, to better integrate health, uh, physical and mental health. What I see in the young folks that I work with in, as students is the alienation they're feeling with their families because they don't speak the language fluently enough to talk to their grandparents. And they lose that connection and the, and the grandparents then feel useless and then they suffer for it. But also, you know, my, my husband was an immigrant from Germany and so he didn't speak English when he first got here. And he said that, but he had no choice because there weren't very many others who spoke. But when you're in these ethnic enclaves, you can maintain that and you don't have to integrate as easily, which reduces the ability to be bicultural at, the, at a minimum mm -hmm. or multicultural as in many neighborhoods in California where you have immigrants from everywhere. So that you're able to, you're sort of caught in between and it's wreaking havoc of the mental health and emotional well-being of the youth. And I think that's a danger we need to be aware of. Mm -hmm. I, um, I, I have some thoughts that are from a slightly different place, which is the school system. I have a friend named Rosa who works, she's the outreach specialist for our gigantic school system. She sees a lot of anxiety and PTSD in the immigrant kids that she works with, and pediatricians also say this. Um, and she gave me some interesting examples, such as um, banging doors and bells, uh, or even having to sit in a classroom too long, a kid who was in the back of a flatbed truck for four days uh, is gonna have reactions. And she said that there are some simple fixes here, and, and the problem is obviously monumental, but some of the fixes are fixes that um, we know are good for all kids in school. For example, let them move around. Uh, after, you know, after the instructional part of class is done, let, especially little middle school kids, let them, let them drape, let them lean. Don't make them feel like they are rats in a cage. Make sure that they get exercise. Um, bring, encourage them to have mentor families, their parents who don't speak a lick of English and don't even understand what, a, what the structure of the school day is like. If they can come in with a mentor family, she says the, the families that have an, another immigrant family that has a little bit more experience come in, and that changes everything. Changes all the outcomes, changes the health of that kid, if that kid will stay in school. And then there's one other tiny thing that I just wanted to tell from my own experience. I spent about a week um, interpreting at a detention center for kids on the border over the summer. And it was exactly as bad as you would think it would be. And I was, we were interviewing the moms about their experiences. And, it, and you are not allowed to touch the subjects in these circumstances. And these are people weeping, being re-traumatized. The interviewers were wigging out. It was a very disturbing situation. After the first day, I was online FaceTiming with a yoga instructor and I said, what can we do to reduce the trauma that the interviewers are feeling and these women, all we want to do is hug each other. She actually gave me a seven-second routine that was extraordinary. You, do, you go like this, across your arms, across your heart, so that the lobes of your brain are interacting. Do this. It was a very short thing, 
And we all did it when things got very bad for all of us, and physiologically, it calmed us. So there, the, the questions that you wrestle with and that you are trying to figure out are huge, but there are some things, some ways of using our body, of letting kids interact that we know are good for all kids and maybe can chip away at some of the um, uh, deep emotional distress. Right. Which is, you know, yoga being an example of something that has been accepted from a, another culture, right? David, did you want to add anything in terms of what, what the system could be doing better to address well, I, the Well, I, I like to go back to, actually, because of diversity, we have a lot of gifts, but medicine doesn't see them. Here's another one, out of the neurosciences, with Alzheimer's. Now, I was born here in California. My parents were told, don't teach them Spanish, it'll make them stupid. And we had, in my lifetime, I was born in 1945, about five or six statewide campaigns to make English the official language. Okay. Well, it turns out that's not so good because when you look at how the brain develops and neural development, if a brain is only exposed to one language and that brain learns dog, the brain grows up and about age 50, 60, when Alzheimer's hits, a portion of the brain decays. And if the portion of the brain decays that had the word dog, the person with Alzheimer's, there's a fuzzy thing. I can't remember the name. However, if that brain is exposed to two languages, literally the brain is wired differently and the brain knows dog and it knows perro. And at age 65, Alzheimer doesn't stop Alzheimer's, it can hit, but if the perro, if the dog part is gone, the perro remains and it's called a cognitive reserve so that actually you can still function even though you're still suffering from Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. and you don't have to learn the language as a kid. Even at age 65, you start learning a second language. It starts to rewire your brain. Literally, being bilingual is one of the best things you can do for mental health, particularly as we age. And we're trying to legislate out of existence. I think that's really stupid. Wow. Okay. That's, we just don't, yeah. we don't appreciate what the riches our diversity brings. Right. Well, that's so interesting that you said that because my grandfather had Alzheimer's and we did notice that he went progressively back to Spanish mm -hmm. as he lost mm -hmm. some of those English words. But we're gonna open it up for questions. Hi, my name is Lisa Marginelli, and um, I'm wondering, there was a previous generation of immigrants that came here and their children became instantly healthier. My great-grandparents came from Sweden and Italy and they were like this tall because they were starving. Uh, and then the, my, my grandparents and my parents are tall, I'm the shortest one in the family. Um, and I just wondered how this, you know, what the, the immigrant health paradox speaks to essentially a U.S. environment that's actually not that healthy. And this older thing of people coming here and kind of shooting up speaks to another time, or, or, or does it? What, is, what are we looking at? Well, what we're looking at is what society is under. It's called the epidemiological transition. It started here in the U.S. and Great Britain. Basically, prior to the Industrial Revolution, we were high-death, high-birth societies. A lot of babies were born. Most of them would not live to reproduce. But as development takes place, and this country, because we took the land from the Indians and stole the labor from the Africans, we had a lot of food. We could actually do the whole Civil War uh, without having to import food. You just had better nutrition here because of its history. And, you didn't, and a lot of these other groups were coming from pre-industrial societies in Europe. When they got here, you have food, you got fresh air, et cetera, et cetera. So compared to the countries of origin, they started going through the epidemiological transition like almost in one generation. Usually it takes about three generations. 
After you urbanize and after you start developing some public health measures, the death rate falls first, and then people realize, well, I don't have to have 10 kids to have two survive to adulthood. Then the birth rate drops. So your ancestors are coming in from pre-industrial into a country that actually was very rich with resources, good nutrition. Now we're in the case of overnutrition that we're, you know, we're offered so much, and most of it's pretty bad empty calories, but hey, it's there and it's cheap and it certainly tastes good. So now we're suffering from the other, the other extreme of that. But that's what you were seeing. And now, because we also have communicable diseases, remember when I was a kid, tuberculosis is one of the top 10 causes of death here in California. Almost nobody gets it and almost nobody dies from it anymore. We have communicable disease under control. We have basic sewage infrastructure, et cetera. So now we can live long enough to get the heart disease, the cancer, and the strokes. Uh, my name is Jorge Sanchez, and my question is, putting aside David's point about the people who the border crossed them, mm -hmm. and thinking about the immigrants, how do you feel, or is there a place to think about a self-selection bias in terms of who an immigrant is? It's usually the people who are robust and resilient who are willing to make the sacrifice and the voyage over. And how does that figure into what we're talking about? I would just agree with you that it, <laughs> that it is a different group that immigrates. And it also makes our country that much stronger if we can capitalize on that energy and that just personnel, they don't fit in back home. They want something more, they want something different. So there's an adventureness. Um, my grandfather came when he was 16 years old from Japan, didn't speak a word of English. I mean, that's not normal for, you know, uh, you think about our kids nowadays, would you send them away, you know, on their own? It, it, it's just a different um, part of that society that chooses to go elsewhere and and be the, the vanguards. You know, so I think we should capitalize on that, but we don't. I would just add one little bit to it, which is, um, it, you know, it's kind of common sense that there's a personality type that comes here, but I think it's not just chance. And I think that um, there's, there's some evidence that families make a decision who in this family is the smartest. You know, who is the person who is least prone to getting sick because that person is gonna be taking care of all of us. And so we, we really do, get these extraordinary people coming over here. If there are ways that the health system doesn't serve immigrants very well, particularly around mental health, because um, when someone is very ill and um, aware that their family member is very ill, but you can't go and talk to a provider because they'll tell you there's confidentiality, there's this, there's that, and a lot of people, some people die, and then a lot of people continue with these illnesses for years and years and years. Shall I start with that sure. one? Uh, that's where our system of the individual is the weakest link, because people are connected. And it really takes a lot of time to work with a family versus an individual who may be afraid to speak up anyway. Right? But if we don't involve the families in ways that are constructive, uh, sometimes the patient doesn't want the family involved. It's gonna get in the way. They just wanna do their thing. So those are all issues that you have to individually tease out with each patient that you're working with um, of what they do want and what they don't want. 
and then the family gets into, I work in cancer, and then the family gets into it and there's all kinds of arguments and this and that. So it's not an easy road to travel, but it's sort of, I feel, an obligation as a clinician to be, make, take that journey with them because I've been down it enough with enough different families at least to give them some alternatives. <coughs> yeah. Hi, I'm Richard Tate. I'm actually with the California Wellness Foundation, so we're proud to be sponsoring the conversation this evening. My question goes back to this issue around death and dying, and my curiosity is really piqued because I have a partner who works in healthcare. He spends an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of time with patients at the end of life who are undergoing extreme procedures to prolong life. And it strikes me that part of that is about this sense that people are being lost, as opposed to what you described in many immigrant families, about that simply being a transition part of this circle of life, if you will, and not necessarily losing that person. You lose an aspect of them, the physical part of them. But I'm curious if there's a difference in the way that immigrants think about kind of those last stages of life and the kind of extraordinary measures that often are taken to prolong life, even though people are suffering, they're ill, and it just strikes me that that's part of this resistance to death and dying as, a, as opposed to embracing it as a natural part of life. So I'm just curious if there are any reflections from the panelists about that. Well, the, we have a lot of professional imperatives as we talk about just medical practice itself. We can do these wonderful things, let's do them. And under fee-for-service, by the way, you got paid a lot to do these heroic interventions. Uh, so here in California, 1% of the population accounts for 25% of medical care costs, 5% of the population accounts for 53%, most of that being spent in the last six mm -hmm. to 12 months of someone's life. Now, I'm not saying let's just not do anything because it's gonna be cheaper, but we need to find a balance because also if you talk with people at end of life, uh, some of them don't want to get chemo at age 93. What good is gonna do, but it's horrible. Chemo is horrible. Uh, so where do we make the balance? And here's where families come in. And sometimes you will get family. Do everything to grandma, you can't, you can't let her die. And grandma's getting subject to all kinds of things. Where is the balance? And I know other people that literally at that stage say, I've been pulling all the intravenous out, I'm going home, I wanna die at home with my family. But we just don't have those discussions in the past because under fee-for-service, we were incentivized as healthcare providers to do as much as possible to keep that heart beating and the breath going, in spite of the fact of the quality of life, we, that was not part of the equation. Now, as we're moving towards healthcare reform and managed care, we need to get more back into balance with getting everybody together, grandma, the family, and what do people want, and is there a better way to do this? Hi, good evening. My name is Jesus Ramirez Baez from San Francisco State University. Um, thank you very much. Uh, I really, really enjoy uh, learning from all of you. I, I would like to turn the question a little bit to us, and I include us because I'm like one of you. I do research and study and trying to figure things out. Um, what is it that we need to do? Um, as I'm an immigrant, and since I came here to study public health, I learned about the Hispanic or Latino paradox, the immigrant paradox. Um, Obamacare, ACA came through and we were very frustrated with it. Um, and then the election came and we were more frustrated. Um, <laughs> what is it that, that we can do? I just feel like um, researchers, scholars, wisdom people like yourselves, uh, we have what we think we need to do, but we seem to be losing ground day by day. What is it that we're rolling in society? What is it at this moment that 
we can do. And I'm asking you really because I, since 2016, I have been that existential um, crisis, right? And what is my worth for in this society that I see going away from us? Well, we have a new governor who has put the vision out of essentially Medicare for everybody. And we were just chatting about it in the green room. And I believe you asked me, Elizabeth, could it possibly happen? And my response is, well, you look around the world, we're the only major industrialized country that does not have that. And we're paying the price. We spend twice as much on health care as any other industrialized, we spend about 18% of our GDP, most countries around about 9%. Mm -hmm. And yet, we are at the bottom in terms of outcomes. We have the worst mortality, worst infant mortality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Clearly, we have a bad bargain if we're paying more and getting mm -hmm. less, okay? And yet, in this country, we have rather strange ideological ideas about who's in, who's out, who's deserving, who's isn't. And we did not go down the road towards universal care after World War I or after World War II when most of the rest of the world did. And in California, we have the advantage. Actually, I think California could pull it off because of our diversity. 62% of the state is diverse, generally younger, which means healthier, can pay in if we can just capture. Actually, I think we could make Medicare or you want to call it Medi-Cal for all work here. I don't think you can do that in Iowa because it's already a very old population with no young population underneath it, and it just, it, it can't be sustainable. It could be done here, and if it's done in the rest of the world, why could we not possibly do it? But we do have some strange ideology, socialized medicine, but Medicare is socialized. Oh, no, no, that, I earned that. Well, you're not going to pay three-fourths of what you get. Um, but it was something we decided this population was deserved. Why can't we just expand it down to everybody else? Every other country does it. It should not be impossible. So keep researching. <laughs> is, 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 is the, I think, the, the message, right? I mean, all of this has been about what we can learn and the work that you do, the, that everyone does, is really important to that end. And especially in California, being a pioneer in terms of the rest of the states. We're just about to get to our last question as we're running out of time, but I know there were a couple more out there, so if you didn't have a chance to ask, not to worry, all of our, uh, of our featured guests will be at our reception right afterwards, and you can continue conversation with them upstairs. Last question is here on the right. Very honored to be the last question. Hi, <laughs> my name is Mayo Buenafeze. Um, I am a cultural anthropologist. I teach at the University of San Francisco, and I am a recent immigrant. I, I just immigrated here about two, year, two years ago. Um, my question is mainly about, like, is there space for how Western health practitioners learn about these cultural nuances of immigrant groups and how it ties to health? Because I saw that there was a disconnect when I moved. So where I grew up in the Philippines, because we didn't have health care, because we were a low socioeconomic status, we went to a specific health practitioner, not a Western doctor. It's called an albolario, so it's like a medicine woman or a medicine man. Um, and that's where we went for our health. And what we could afford, we, could, we, we would pay with what we could afford. Um, when I moved here to California, I feel very lucky that I get to choose my women of color as my doctors. Um, but then when I try to explain to them, like I was recently diagnosed with that I'm pre-diabetic and I told her like, I don't think it's like my diet because my husband's pescatarian, so I don't think it's that. And then I started to talk to her about my lifestyle changes. And even though she was a woman of color, like um, I felt like she didn't understand why like that was a 
problem for me, like how my lifestyle changed and how it contributed to my health. So that's why my question is, is there a way that health practitioners are trained about these cultural nuances about health? Marjorie. <laughs> Is there a way? Talk with Nancy. <laughs> Nancy, raise your hand. Um, that's her area of research and, and has spent the last, what, 20 years um, trying to figure out. I, I was talking with this doctor uh, who was presenting a case of a patient in the intensive care unit, and he just was going back and forth about how the mother did not understand that her daughter was dying and she needed to be moved out of the ICU to the regular unit. And I asked him, and he said, I don't know what else I can do. You know, we've done all the treatments, we've done all the, you know, anything we can think of. And I said, have you given of yourself? And he just was, it was like I threw cold water on him. And it never entered his mind. And I said, you might ask her what her thoughts are about her daughter's condition. And he came back the next week and he said that the mother, when he posed the question to her, she said, I know my daughter's dying, but I have to keep working so that I can pay the bills. And if I move her to the units, she won't get the care that she's getting now. I haven't been able to give it to her in her lifetime. This is the last gift I can give her. You know, so it's lis learning to listen, to understand what is driving people about their health or the lack of, and being able to take the time to listen is something that the way our healthcare system is structured, the doctors are just as frustrated. They don't have the time. You know, you're supposed to see 40 patients you know, in six hours, at 10 minutes, 15 minutes a visit, that's not possible. So those are the kinds of things, I think from a health service perspective, we need to take a look at again and readjust that so that you can have those conversations and she can listen to what you really are saying to her. Are you seeing that training, David? Oh God. <laughs> no, in no. a word, in fact, it's just the opposite. the opposite. What we do in, yeah. in undergraduate medical education, medical school is undergraduate, and I primarily work in graduate with residents, but uh, in four years, we uh, introduce to medical students, we, they're called standardized patients. Now, they're actors. They act being a patient, but the standardized, they will give the same symptoms so that the physicians or the medical students get some experience actually doing a history and everything else. Out of the 20 standardized patients that they get, 18 are non-Hispanic white. There's one African-American patient and one Latino patient. And basically, and I uh, do a first-year elective right after the students, first-year students had their first interaction with standardized patients. And it's on Latino health, so the primary, the Latino medical students, and they're just furious about standardized patient because they're given a stereotype. Jose, the gardener, illegal immigrant, diabetic, eating chicharrones, smokes, wears huaraches. I'm not kidding. So what they get for that one standard is basically a bunch of stereotypes and nothing else. And they don't talk about what we were talking here in the undergraduate medical curriculum. 
Then they go off to do their residencies, and then depending on the hospitals they go to, if they go to a prestigious hospital like UCLA, we want to make your researches, and this stuff is never touched on again. If they're lucky, they go to a community teaching hospital, they have real live clinicians who practice in the area, they will get some stuff by osmosis. But it's not structured in either undergraduate or graduate medical education. The diversity of the students is probably where they get the most interaction with one another, and we're trying to cut that back all the time. So it's, I don't feel too good about it, and I'm right <laughs> in the middle of it. I, I know what we don't do, and we do not handle diversity very well. In my reporting, I, th I think one of the things that I found is that it's happening very little in, in sort of random places, right? There's no system for this. So I'll just give one example. At UC Riverside, they have the medical school that they opened a few years ago. One of the programs they have is that they're recruiting students from the Riverside area because it's a desert out there in terms of medical providers. And so in that, they're getting some diversity in their students and then they're also placing their students in clinics in that area and they have this elaborate system that they hope will keep the students there once they become fully fledged physicians to be able to serve the community. And they're not necessarily any classes about this, but the fact that they're placing them in the communities to work with providers who are already there working with maybe low income communities or Medi-Cal patients that they're hopefully learning some of those skills, but there isn't, as far as I've seen, right, something that's established, like let's learn about how culture influences health. What saved my sanity, because I studied here at UCSF, but between Berkeley and UCSF, I was involved in helping to set up La Clinica de la Raza in East Oakland. I, I had the honor of being the first executive director, and I learned about not only culture, but politics, economics, racial narratives, you name it, boom. So being Crash in those course. places definitely that makes really a difference. That really helped. Right. Then I went to UCSF, but I was already immunized by then. <laughs> Well, before we wrap up tonight, I'd like to thank the California Wellness Foundation for making tonight possible. We're so grateful for them and so excited about our partnerships. A round of applause for them, please. Also, thank you to the Mechanics Institute and the Dada Bar for hosting us tonight. We're so honored to be here as well in their beautiful space. Also, thank all of you for joining us. It was great to see all your faces here tonight, uh, some familiar and so many new ones as well. Um, and also, please stick around. The drinks are waiting just upstairs, and we have people pointing you in the right direction up the stairs or through the elevators to the fourth floor. Um, join us at the reception to continue this conversation, which I'm so sorry that I have to be the guy to stop right now. Um, and finally, a big round of applause for Elizabeth, Marjorie, Claudia, and David. Thank you all so much for coming.